Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Fight COVID-19 with Neutralizing MAVs is accredited by Forefront Collaborative and AKH and supported by an educational grant from Lilly. This replay of a live broadcast focuses on how we can overcome challenges in the treatment of COVID-19. Since the presentation recording, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, ASPR, paused all distribution of bamlanivimab and edisivimab and edisivimab alone to pair with existing bamlanivimab supply. Two additional changes of note, dosing of casarivimab and imdevimab decreased to 600 milligrams of each compound. EUA criterion pertaining to BMI was reduced to 25. Now, here's your moderator, Dr. Mimi Secor. Hi, I'm Dr. Mimi Secor, and I'd like to welcome to the program Dr. Marilyn Bullock, Associate Clinical Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Auburn University, Harrison School of Pharmacy, and the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Dr. Robert Gottlieb from the Center for Advanced Advanced Heart and Lung Disease at Baylor University Medical Center, Baylor Scott and White Research Institute in Dallas, Texas, and Ms. Tessa Siabra, Associate Director in the Department of Medicine at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. They are going to join me in discussing the use of neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy in the outpatient treatment of patients with COVID-19. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Please note, faculty disclosures are available on the event page and are listed on this slide. During this activity, you will hear from our multidisciplinary faculty as they share clinical trial information, best practices, and real experiences from their own institutions. You'll have a chance to claim credit by completing an evaluation after participating in the course and have your questions answered live during a question and answer session. Dr. Gottlieb, infection rates have been going down in the United States, but are now starting to tick up in some states. What, are, what have we learned in the past year that can inform our approach to COVID-19 now? Thank you, Dr. Secor, for that question. If we could bring up the first slide, please. And if you'll skip to the next, thank you. So this is a different era from where we were at just one year ago. One year ago, when COVID-19 was starting to progress across the country, the guidance that we gave our um, country per people was stay at home unless you need hospitalization. We didn't have anything for them. We were just starting to get testing, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Now we are informed by a year of progressive accumulation of data and expertise and how to best to manage this how the virus behaves, what to expect. And we are now in a new era where we have outpatient, effective, safe therapies for COVID-19. COVID-19 is a deceiving name. First of all, I'm fortunate that this is COVID-19 rather than say COVID-2021. It's not supposed to be here this year, but we'll move on past that. But different people have a different constellation of symptoms, especially early on. And that mix and match of symptoms may deceive somebody. A lot of patients say, gosh, uh, you know, my family member had COVID, but they also had pneumonia. Well, COVID pneumonia is the hospital disease that we're trying to prevent. And patients often have a window where they're either 
early in the disease process, perhaps mildly symptomatic, that might be an opportunity to intervene on changing the, the course of their illness. They may think themselves too well, but we really, we need that extra time to know what's coming down the pike. And unfortunately, we don't have that personalized nature of medicine yet. We don't know what the future holds. We just have statistics. And we can predict with certain risk factors who is at greater risk. But if something happens to one individual, uh, the opportunity to have intervened was always earlier. So uh, it's all about the virus and the host and we don't know exactly how that interplay occurs until after the fact. During the course of uh, last fall and, uh, and winter, we were fortunate to have a total of three emergency use authorization neutralizing monoclonals informed by phase two uh, randomized placebo-controlled trials. Since that time, we now have phase three data as well that I'm gonna reference later on, on in the talk and Dr. Bullock is going to go over the criteria for the emergency use authorization. And Dr. Siabra, uh, Ms. Siabra is going to share best practices of how to administer these. The first therapy that was authorized is bamlanivimab, and that was on November 9th, followed in close succession by the combination therapy of casarivimab and imdevimab together. And then most recently, in early February, we've seen the combination of bamlanivimab and edisavimab together authorized. And in fact, in the last week, uh, the FDA has started encouraging us to use the bamlanivimab and edisavimab combination together um, in lieu of monotherapy bamlanivimab and is, out, out, is now issuing edisavimab vials to match and complete the set for bamlanivimab to make that combination together. We're gonna go through the data that has led to the emergency use authorizations and further data that actually supports uh, the efficacy and clinical use of why you should be advising patients early in their disease process to consider these therapies. Because ultimately they decrease hospitalization and uh, risk of death. And we now have that data emerging from phase three clinical trials for the combination therapies. Next slide. The purpose of a combination is to target the virus in more than one spot and give it more than one therapy that it has to try to escape from to make uh, the therapy itself more enduring. Uh, on the left here, we have bamlanivimab alone, um, where mutations of specific point mutations, for example, um, glutamine uh, 484 lysine, E484K, and the others listed here, can decrease the um, inhibitory concentration 50 uh, and tighter uh, the avidity of the neutralizing monoclonal antibody for the virus, allowing the virus to have the potential to start escaping. Now, if you add a second antibody together, it makes it more challenging to escape from both antibodies at the same time. And indeed, instead of being two orders of magnitude down, it's less than one order of magnitude down with these uh, mutations for adesivimab. And that gives us the hypothesis that combination therapy will be more enduring, as well as uh, limit the escape and help address uh, variants. Next slide. So Dr. Gottlieb, how do these data, how do those data translate to the therapy that is appropriate to give to patients? Well, the most important thing to know about this is the opportunity, as we'll go and explain and share, is most evident early in the disease process. The analogy I would draw is if your house is burglarized, 
the opportunity to capture that burglar is when the burglar is just entering or is in your house and you've hopefully noticed on a security camera. If you're out of town on vacation, you come back and you see that your house has been burglarized, there's very little chance of capturing that burglar after they've already had a week to intervene. That's really what we're talking about here. The opportunity to intervene and prevent progression to COVID-19 pneumonia requiring hospitalization is early on in the disease course. And I recommend my patients capture that opportunity if they're eligible for a therapy. Dr. Bullock, what are your thoughts? I agree. I think that earlier that you start these drugs, the better off patients do. We know that that's true with all anti-infectives. We have that data from really most infectious disease processes up to this point. It stands to reason that it would continue with COVID-19. Ms. Siabra? Yes, I agree. Um, in our institution, it's really like the therapy that we give to our patients. It has to do a lot with the inventory that we have currently that is coming to um, to our hospital. So it, it varies and it changes, but it, it has, you know, primarily it will help if uh, we give the most appropriate therapy to the patient. Back to you, Dr. Gottlieb. Thanks. So the purpose of the next few slides is to share the phase two data uh, that informs the basis uh, for the subsequent phase three data. Um, the first phase two data is really going to discuss virologic activity, but ultimately what all, all of us want to know as clinicians is what is the clinical efficacy? So let's build that story one by one. Let's start with the phase two data. The, this is the story of casarivimab and imdevimab together from Regeneron. And the purpose of this uh, graph here is to show that patients early on in the disease that haven't had time to generate their own antibodies will actually have a virologic benefit from the combination infusion. And so these are antibody negative patients on the left early on in the disease, and you have a significant additional benefit of virologic clearance on top of the natural history of virologic clearance. And really what you notice also is the highest titers are early on in the disease, either in that pre-symptomatic or early, early symptomatic phase. Now on the right, these are patients that we thought were within seven days of symptoms, um, but in the end, they probably had it longer because they were already seropositive uh, on enrollment. They didn't recognize that they had ha actually had the infection for longer. And when you add exogenous antibodies to endogenous antibodies, you no longer have the additive effect because the disease is already progressing to that next stage. You're either destined to worsen or destined uh, to recover on your own. This is another way of looking at that. Another surrogate for early disease is the viral titer. When you have the highest viral titer on the far right, you have the most pronounced virologic effect. And this was studied at two dosing levels of the casarivimab and devimab combination. You see just to the left of that, at 10 to the 6 copies, you still have that pronounced virologic effect for both dosing levels, uh, whereas as you come down on copy number and you're further on in your disease, likely, uh, the virologic effect is attenuated such that on the far left, you actually don't see a virologic effect when a patient enters the trial having a lower viral load, and that suggests that they've actually had the disease longer. So the opportunity to have the virologic effect is early on in the disease. What we also saw was from bamlanivimab and edisevimab together, this is the Eli Lilly combination uh, neutralizing monoclonal, and we saw a natural 
uh, trend towards clearance of the virus in most patients between day three, seven, and 11. In fact, that may inform some of our quarantine recommendations. But what you see on the far right is the, um, of each panel is the gray bars of the placebo. And next to that in mustard yellow, you see the combination. The combination of bamlanivimab and edisevimab together has virologic activity detectable as early as day three, persisting to day seven, and that the primary endpoint at day 11 is statistically significant for a virologic effect. And that was thus the dose that was chosen for an additional phase three data uh, that I'll go on to show you. So Dr. Gottlieb, we're going to hear soon about this specific EUA criteria that would make a patient appropriate for neutralizing monoclonal antibodies based on the presence of certain risk factors. How do you approach patients, especially now as people are feeling optimistic about the vaccines becoming increasingly available, uh, with their symptoms when their symptoms do not qualify them for hospitalization, that they should go and get infusion therapy? Well, I think it's important to educate patients and their healthcare providers that we now have the evidence base. And that's what I'm going to walk you through the following slides, because a lot of people say, okay, great, you have virologic effect. What I really care about is, is it going to help my patient decrease their risk? Is it going to help my patient recover? Is it going to help prevent death in my patient? And is it going to help them avoid hospitalization? So let's walk through that. Next slide. Here's the hypothesis that Early on in the disease, when you have outpatient early, mild to moderate COVID-19, the disease is a virally driven disease that is susceptible to antivirals uh, to actually alter the future course. Whereas late in the disease, using the um, analogy to the burglar, where the burglar's already out of the home, the damage is already done and the cascade's already set in motion and the opportunity is already closed on antivirals working. So we've actually studied clinical trials, uh, through clinical trials, this both in inpatient and outpatient settings. Uh, so I'm going to walk you through the outpatient trials of Blaze 1, as well as the, uh, that was from Eli Liu, as, as well as the Regeneron version um, for their combination. The criteria are slightly, slightly different, but overall similar. And the phase three clinical trials use the uh, original emergency use authorization criteria that have been slightly modified in the interval. In Blaze 1, the criteria was to uh, enroll within three days of the first positive test. And in fact, typically the patients were about four days from symptoms. In Regeneron patient, that had to be within seven days of the first symptoms. The hypothesis here is latent disease, the, the, the COVID-19 is actually potentially virally uncoupled, and you've lost that window. If someone is sitting at home with influenza, we ask them to try to get an antiviral early in their disease course within the first 48 hours. The analogy here is, although testing takes some time, we would recommend a patient that meets the criteria for the EUA, consider the emergency use authorization, neutralizing monoclonal antibodies early in the disease process when they don't require hospitalization, with an intent to decrease the risk of progressing to need hospitalization. So let's talk about the phase three data. So Blaze One is the uh, multi-part trial that now has phase three data available. Regeneron has also re released their data um, in, in the past week or so, but the data is very complementary. Blaze One was the Eli Lilly, Bamlanivimab, and Edisevimab combination. This is real large clinical trial randomized data where you have Bamlanivimab plus edisevimab together at a combination of 2,800 milligrams of each 
versus placebo, 1,035 patients. The primary endpoint is, could we decrease the risk of progression to hospitalization for COVID-19 or all-cause death? And here, what you see in gray, you actually have the natural history, where about 7% of the patients that had high-risk factors meeting the EUI criteria progressed to hospitalization or death, whereas only 2.1% of patients that were treated with the active bamlanivimab and edisevimab combination together progressed. That was a 70% risk reduction. And in fact, there were about 12 deaths in the trial that were all in the placebo arm and none in the active arm. So we can say that this actually does seem to prevent death as well. On the right, we asked the question, could we use a lower dose because we thought we were already at saturating doses? Could we use lower dose, preserve the antiviral efficacy and clinical efficacy, and potentially reach more patients with a limited supply? And the answer is yes. This is the first half of that data. And uh, uh, about midway through this, we were detecting about an 87% risk reduction uh, in 29-day hospitalization and uh, all-cause death in this trial. These are two sequential phase three portions of a trial, and then coupled together with the uh, Regeneron data from casarivimab and Mdevimab together this week, also showing a 70% risk reduction in a comparable, uh, comparably designed trial. We now have three different data points that all say, yes, we actually don't have just virologic activity, but we can actually clinically help the patients. However, if a patient waits too long and they're hospitalized, this is the data from the first arm of the active three NIH clinical trial asking, will neutralizing monoclonal antibodies have efficacy in the inpatient setting? And just as we uh, referenced before, once you're hospitalized, the disease seems to be virally uncoupled, or at least that's what I believe. And in this case, the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies did not change the time to sustain recovery or chance of hospital discharge in patients hospitalized with severe COVID-19. So this frames the, the discussion, informs us on the disease, the patient sitting at home saying, am I sick enough? The answer is, you actually have symptoms. You're in the window where we can intervene. If you wait too long, we may not have that window. So in summary, we now have not only phase two clinical trial data, but we have phase three clinical, clinical trial data that really forms the basis of current and future emergency use authorizations that the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies indeed can decrease the risk of hospitalization, ER visits, or death when given within 72 hours of the diagnosis. The EUA criteria that Dr. Bullock is going to reference are a little broader to allow practicality in administration. These have not been demonstrated uh, to have efficacy once a patient requires hospitalization uh, for COVID-19, so the window is early. And then the effect seems to be more dramatic in higher risk patients um, and in those that uh, have not had the chance to generate their own antibody response, suggesting once again, the early window is the best. They appear to be safe and well tolerated. And Dr. Bullock is going to discuss uh, in her portion how to safely administer them. Um, the, and then uh, Ms. Siabra is also going to share her practical experience in a large urban center. So let's actually move on to this polling question. Um, so I'll read this off. A 57-year-old perimenopausal female with a body mass index of 34.9 calls your office to report five days of chills without fever and associated myalgias, but absent cough. She followed your advice and bought a pulse oximeter last year just in case. 
Her pulse oximetry is 95% on Remer. She had a positive rapid SARS-CoV-2 direct antigen test uh, just today at a drive-through test center. She asks you as her healthcare provider to call in a prescription for ivermectin. I will say before you move on to answering this question, I want to inform you that in our clinical trials, we actually specified that a body mass index of 34.5 specifically rounded up to 35. So All right, polling question number one. What do you recommend? A, ivermectin and strict quarantine. B, social isolation and keep checking her pulse ox. Hospitalization if the PSO2 is 90 or less. C, neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy if she develops a fever or cough. Counsel her she is not sick enough to qualify. D, it is too late for neutralizing antibody, uh, monoclonal antibody therapy as it has been over 48 hours since her symptoms began. E, arrange neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy with bamlanivimab together with etacevimab the following day. F, repeat the test as COVID-19 diagnosis requires PCR rather than direct antigen test. Uh, our group is... Dr. Secor, I think the audience has nailed it. Um, so this is great. No one, uh, no one fell for any of those foils. So the manufacturer acknowledges that ivermectin does not work. A year ago, we had a temptation to use therapies just because we didn't have any. Now we have therapies. We can use evidence-based therapies. The manufacturer of ivermectin does not recommend its use uh, and has uh, made public comments along those lines. In terms of the social isolation, sit at home and wait for your pulse ox to drop, not only is that not the right choice because she does qualify for neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, but the second portion here I want to emphasize is that this is a SARS virus. Unlike other viruses where you can wait till someone has an oxygen level of 90%, the definition for many trials of severe COVID-19 usually has a cut point of around 93 to 94%. And that's the time that I actually recommend a patient consider hospitalizations, particularly if they're not usually requiring oxygen and sitting at 93%. She does qualify and it is early. So I do recommend going ahead and considering the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies at the earliest opportunity. In this case, a wait of under a day is certainly reasonable. If you can get it the same day, great. Back to you, Dr. Secor. Thank you, Dr. Gottlieb. I'd now like to introduce Dr. Bullock. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. So speaking of identifying appropriate patients for neutralizing monoclonal antibody infusion therapy, can you review the EUA criteria for use? I'll be happy to. Can we go to our next slide? And then the one after that. There, there we go. So I think what's important to understand is after I kind of iterated several times, is these drugs are meant for outpatients with mild disease. Um, whose oxygen saturation is still good. They're not requiring oxygen, or if they're on baseline oxygen, like some of our COPD patients have, it has their demand hasn't gone up. And what we're really trying to do is to keep them from progressing to severe COVID-19 and requiring hospitalization and having sort of the downward spiral that we know can occur. And so when the FDA put together the EUA, they really looked at who was at high risk for that progression. Now, the group of patients that I tend to see the most in my practice fall in this left category over here. They're geriatrics or maybe they're obese with a BMI over 35. They might have CKD or diabetes or they're immunosuppressed. So either physiologically or we did it to them with some sort of medicine. I also see a fair share of people who qualify because they're a little bit younger. They're over the age of 55, but they have some sort of chronic pulmonary or cardiovascular disease. 
There is an allowance for use in adolescents, those between 12 and 17, as long as they're at least 40 kilograms. And that 40 kilograms is really important because we know that adolescents have different pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic parameters, which can affect the way their bodies process and respond to a drug. And so that's an important thing to remember. But beyond that, the FDA looked at things that they thought qualified an adolescent for progressing to severe COVID-19. The one I think most people are going to see most frequently is going to be children or adolescents who have some sort of chronic pulmonary disease that are on chronic medications. I know in my um, area of the country, I also see a lot of sickle cell disease, but they really did sort of look to see who who was at high risk for progression. You also want to take into consideration these are not FDA-approved regimens. They're still experimental, and in order to use them, you have to explain the risks versus benefits to patients and get consent from either the patient or their designee. Next slide, please. I also want um, to go through some just some considerations for treatment administration. These all target the receptor binding domain of the spike protein on the virus, but they target different areas. And as Dr. Gottlieb mentioned previously, this can be very helpful in terms of making sure that we're able to cover several of the variants that we know have emerged. But another concept behind this combination therapy is not only are we helping to make sure that we can cover the variants that are already out there, but maybe even prevent future treatment emergent variances from developing. The doses that exist right now may change. Um, We're seeing more data. They're looking at different combinations. And is what we're using now when the dose, if these drugs do get FDA approved, they may or may not be dosed the same way we're using now. Pregnancy is a consideration that I think is worth mentioning because Many people who work outside of OB have a tendency to want to avoid medication use during pregnancy. We're not very comfortable with it. But remember that these are fully human Ig antibodies. And so unlike monoclonal antibodies that may be created to using mice, these are more natural and people are less likely to have reactions to them. And while there's no data in pregnancy with either one of these regimens yet, in general, IgG products are not withheld in pregnancy. So if you have a woman who's pregnant who otherwise would qualify, she certainly should be considered for one of these regimens. On the other hand, pediatrics is a little bit more debatable. The American Academy of Pediatrics takes a different stance than the FDA. They just put out a paper that specifically recommends against the routine use of these drugs in children, primarily because we don't have a lot of data on how they work and how what their safety is in adolescents. And we do have to remember that they have different pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic parameters. And until that information is available, they just don't feel comfortable recommending them routinely. There's also the consideration that there's conflicting data about exactly what does put an adolescent at high risk for progressing to severe COVID-19. The one guideline for COVID-19 that has been consistently a living document is the NIH guidelines, and they've made a couple of different points regarding both regimens. 
for casarivimab and devimab, they say at this point, they don't feel that there's enough published data and data points to make a stance one way or the other. They can't say that it works, but they can't say that it doesn't. There has just recently been some more data provided. They may update their recommendation from that, but we'll have to wait and see. On the other hand, with bamlanivimab and etizumab, they do feel that, that it has been studied in enough patients and with enough clinical data points that they felt comfortable making an evidence-based recommendation to use these in people who qualify. Dr. Bullock, how do you connect patients with a provider who administers neutralizing antibodies? That's such a great question and one that I think has emerged a lot over the last few months. Can we go to my next slide and we'll look at ways we can do this. When they first came out, I feel like they were probably isolated to specific centers and with um, big health systems, but they, it has expanded quite a bit. And now infusions are authorized in a, a wide variety of settings, everything from clinics to the emergency room, even you can take them to nursing homes. I've heard of places even going right into the patient's home and infusing them. A lot of big health systems do have integrated clinics in their own infusion centers. And this is wonderful, especially if you live in a big metro area or somewhere near a, a large academic medical center or health system. But it can still be difficult for those clinicians who work in small towns or rural areas that aren't integrated into these health systems. So Health and Human Services created a website that is very easy to use. You log in, you put in your zip code and what driving range you're willing to go to, and it will show you everywhere within that range that has received a shipment of one of these regimens. Now, it's just shipment data. There's no guarantee that they're actually infusing at the certain times that you want, but it's a great starting point. The National Infusion Center Association also provides a list of infusion centers that are providing monoclonal antibody therapy, but it's not based on shipment data, so there's no guarantee that they received an allocation that week um, or they're going to have any supply, but also a great starting point when you don't have a point of reference. If you happen to be in a place where you feel like, I have enough patients that I, I would be able to administer this. You can do that. The government is providing the medication and it's using a single wholesaler in Ameris Horsbergen. So you can go onto their specific website, put in your information and they'll contact you in order to make that happen. All right, Dr. Bullock, what are the requirements or barriers to administering antibody therapies outside of an infusion center, such as a long-term care center or a residential facility? Yeah, it's such a great, Thing to talk about because we have expanded where we have gone with these infusions and how we're able to administer them outside of just your traditional infusion clinic. Can we go to the next slide and we'll walk through this process? So these drugs all have to be refrigerated until they're prepared. And even once they're made up, they really need to be refrigerated until it's time to use. And so if you happen to be at a clinic or somewhere that's going to administer them on site, it's best just to wait to prepare the infusion until the patient gets there and has IV access. Once they arrive, you want to go ahead and escort them to their room, um, make sure that you're kind of isolating them from everybody else and everyone's wearing appropriate PPE. But you can make them up ahead of time. It's just when you make them, just 
you want to give them a chance to get to room temperature. So when they infuse into the patient, they're comfortable. They're all going to go in normal saline. It just depends on which drug and which volume. Now, consistently, you can put them in 250 milliliters of normal saline, though that can differ um, according to what regimen you're using. With casarivimab and devimab, each drug comes in its own 11.1 milliliter vial, but you're only going to take 10 milliliters from each vial. But in order to get the right concentration, you need to take 20 milliliters out from your infusion bag so that you're not having you know, more fluid than you need to and get the right concentration. With bamlamivib and estizivimab, it's a little bit different. Here, you can use lower volumes of fluid, um, as low as 50 milliliters bags, but you're going to be adding 60 milliliters, 20 milliliters from three different vials, and you don't have to take any out from the infusion um, in order to get the right concentration. What's nice is that you can administer these drugs either by pump or by gravity as long as you have the right um, filter. With castorivimab and devimab, you're going to give it over 60 minutes. With bamlanomavib and estizivimab, um, it really depends on the final concentration. If the smaller volume that you're using, the faster you can give it. So if you're using that 50 milliliter bag, you can give it as quickly as you know, 21 minutes. You can consider longer infusions, particularly in delicate heart failure or CKD patients, uh, as well as those who might have had really mild infusion-related reactions. There's no guidance exactly on what longer means. There is some guidance in um, lower weight patients, those who weigh between 40 and 50 kilograms with bamlamivib and estizivimab, um, they can give that over 70 minutes instead of 60. But the thing that really important thing to remember is the stability. Um, these drugs do need to be refrigerated once they're prepared. Um, with bamlamivib and estizivimab, you can put them in the refrigerator for 24 hours and then they're stable at room temperature for up to seven hours. With the Regeneron product, you can refrigerate them for up to 36 hours, but they're only stable at room temperature for, for five hours. And that time does have to include the infusion period as well. Now, while you're infusing them just for safety, you have to make sure that you get vital signs at baseline and every 15 minutes throughout both the infusion and through the one hour monitoring period. For those of you just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Mimi Secor, and joining me to talk about neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapies for outpatient COVID-19 treatment are Dr. Bullock, Dr. Gottlieb, and Ms. Siabra. What do we need to watch for in monitoring patients after having received an infusion? Well, luckily, these drugs seem to be well tolerated, as we can see on my next slide. Most people do really well at them. They don't even notice that anything is happening during the infusion. There have been some cases of nausea or bleeding or bruising soreness around the injection site. With bamlanomavib and estizivimab, they've had some dizziness, itching, a rash. With the Regeneron product, they have seen some vomiting, but one I just want to point out is hyperglycemia. So if you have a patient who's a sensitive diabetic, you may want to monitor glucose a little bit closer. Thankfully, the risk of severe adverse effects is rare, but it's still there. So while they're getting the infusion and for the 
hour afterwards, you need to watch for anaphylaxis and infusion-related reactions. They have been associated with clinical worsening after drug administration, but to be fair, the symptoms that patients experience also seem to correlate with progression of COVID-19. So we haven't really been able to definitively say, was this the drug or was this the disease? But certainly as we use these drugs more, we'll get a clearer picture on that. But should you have a patient who does have a severe reaction or there's a medication error that occurs, you must notify both the FDA and the manufacturer within seven calendar days. Next slide. So here's the polling question that I was just talking about. To date, what has been your biggest challenge in using or recommending the neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy? A, understanding what patients would qualify for treatment, B, locating where patients could receive therapy, C, trying to find the balance between the goal of preventing COVID-19 disease progression with vaccination efforts. We're giving you a couple more seconds to answer, and then Dr. Bullock will review the uh, possible answers. Well, I certainly hope we've been able to help people locate them. And let's talk about the balance between vaccination and antibody therapy with my next slide. Now, this is something that hasn't necessarily been studied, but in theory, that monoclonal antibodies could reduce our body's immune response to the vaccine, and that's not what we want. We want to be able to build that immunity. If you have somebody who's been fully or partially vaccinated, who unfortunately does develop COVID-19 and they qualify, go ahead and give them the antibody. The vaccine doesn't seem to have any impact on the antibodies mechanism of action. It's just the reverse. For those patients who are using the two-dose vaccine series, you do have to wait three months after the monoclonal antibody administration to get your second dose. Because remember, we wanna give that vaccine a fighting chance to build full immunity. But once you do, you don't have to restart the vaccine series you can just get your second dose. And those who haven't been vaccinated yet at all will just wait that full 90-day window after antibody infusion before they get vaccinated. Next slide. There may also be cases of patients who might need these drugs more than once, um, particularly because we think that use of antibody therapy therapy may technically attenuate the body's endogenous immune response, meaning that while we may prevent them from progressing to severe COVID-19, they may not develop that natural immunity to the virus and could get reinfected. And now there's no data or case reports on recurrent use of these antibodies. It's just a, a theoretical at this point. We do know that the drug's half-life is about three to four weeks, so you're probably okay between that. There's also the consideration about variants, as Dr. Gottlieb went over, different drugs may cover different variants, and so if you have a patient who does seem to be reinfected, that would be something you would want to think about. But in general, you want to take each case on a case-by-case -case basis. Dr. Bullock, thank you for the thorough overview. As we move into our last section of the presentation, Ms. Siabra will go into more detail about her institution's program and walk us through a case. As a reminder, we have three more polling questions coming up as part of this case. Ms. Siabra, your practice is, a is at a large medical center that sees a diverse population of patients. What are your institutional goals in implementing a uh, neutralizing monoclonal antibody infusion program? 
Hi, good evening, Dr. Sikor. So yes, so uh, we did open our unit mid-November and really the institutional goals was to decompress the ED, to reduce the number of hospitalizations and to increase the rate of survival since our hospital was at the time at full capacity. Um, next slide, please. So on this slide, we just, it shows our volume from mid-November till now. We're doing an average of 10 to 15 cases a day, which doesn't seem a lot, but because of the turnaround time of the rooms being about three hours, it did require that length of time for the patient to be in the room. So with the total volume, we can start with the total volume that was 783 and still counting because we're still doing uh, infusions today. We did complete a total of 414 infusions. Uh, 369 were not infused because 315 did not meet, meet criteria. And um, primarily because patients tested more than 10 days ago or they need not meet criteria um, as previously discussed by, by Dr. Bullock. 23 of these case uh, patients did uh, cancel their infusion and a lot had to do with the lack of knowledge. The patients were scared, they had a lot of questions and they preferred to manage their symptoms by going to self-quarantine. 12 were referred to other agencies like home health because they were unable to come to the unit due to their mobility. 11 were referred to other uh, MAP therapy, therapy facilities because of distance or because we're closed on the weekends and only operating Monday to Friday only. Um, seven patients were hospitalized because of symptom progression and one patient actually ended up expiring. And that made us look into our workflow and actually start opening on the weekend as well and just having that uh, Monday through Sunday operation. Next slide. Ms. Yabra, how has your institution uh, worked with long-term care facilities to expand access to neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapies? So actually on the next slide, we'll be able to look into that. So we started doing a lot of outside referrals. So initially we're seeing a large percentage of patients that required patient transport or they're coming from nursing homes or rehab facilities that did require a lot of coordination and a lot of manpower as well. Even though initially the rooms were single occupancy only, eventually we also allow caregivers, family members to accompany the patient due to frailty or risk of falls. So as more facilities start infusing the MAP therapy here in California, we're also able to collaborate and coordinate the care for these patients. So as the initial order came in to us, we'll triage the patients via phone, uh, we'll perform an independent living assessment, and that will determine the need for our site, home infusion, or long-term long care facility infusion. We'll then refer the patient to the case management team, which will then connect the patient and the family with the best and safest option for the patient as well. Next slide, please. So now we're gonna go over a case scenario and this is Rose, she's 88 years old. She has a history of coronary artery disease, diabetes and hypertension. She tested positive for COVID-19 and her doctor entered an order for neutralizing MAP therapy. The scheduler called her for a same day appointment. The patient is hard of hearing, seems slightly confused on the phone. She passed the phone to her daughter who told the scheduler that both her parents have COVID-19 and that her dad, he's much sicker than her mom. However, since they do have COVID-19, the daughter acknowledges that her parents should quarantine for 10 to 14 days, and then she'll call back and schedule for the infusion. So polling question, the scheduler 
A, agrees with the daughter and tells her to call back in 10 to 14 days after quarantine. B, educate the daughter that the infusion has to occur within 10 days of symptom onset. C, or a positive test. D, tell the daughter that her parents do not meet criteria for neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy. E, tell the daughter to call her mother's doctor and change the order to a later date after self-quarantine. F, tell the daughter that if patients, if patients have mild symptoms, they do not need neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy. Looks yeah, like so, a consensus. Yeah, consensus. So this is correct. We educated the daughter. The infusion has to occur within 10 days of symptom onset. And this is because a lot of our patients, they still assume that the, the message, it is to quarantine 10 to 14 days. They think they should have the infusion only after those 10 to 14 days have passed. Next slide. So now the daughter understands, but now tells the scheduler that we should have received the order for both her parents. We tell her that at this time, we only have the order for the mom, and then we have an opening for the afternoon. She asks if her dad can take the mother's spot since he's sicker and not doing well. The dad is 91 years old, history of hypertension, lung cancer. In the past, he had photodynamic therapy two years ago, and he's currently in remission. We call pharmacy, and I informed that the order for the dad was just approved. The problem is that we only have one spot left. How do we proceed? A, schedule the mom because her order came in first. B, schedule the dad since he's sicker. C, schedule both at the same time in the same room. Uh, D, schedule dad for the following day. E, tell the daughter to take dad to urgent care or ED. Yes, so in this case, we did schedule both at the same time in the same room. And again, this was one of the ways that we changed our workflows to accommodate as many patients as possible. Um, so if the patients were from the same household, we started doing double room occupancy, like husband and wife or a parent and daughter or, or son. So next slide. So now both husband and wife are placed in the same room and they are happy to be together. While starting the IV on the wife, the nurse notices that she's diaphoretic. She states that she feels lightheaded. When checking vital signs, the heart rate is in the 40s, systolic blood pressure in the 70s, the patient has a 10-second loss of consciousness. We recheck the vital signs and her heart rate and BP are back to baseline. She doesn't know what happened and she feels weak, but otherwise okay. How should the nurse proceed? A, call the physician, get an order for a blood sugar test. B, call the crisis team and send the patient to the ED. C, cancel the infusion, send the patient home. D, draw labs, check an EKG. E, do nothing and proceed with the infusion. Well, that's correct. We do call the MD and do a blood sugar check. A lot of our patients, because of their comorbidities, they require medical management. So we rely on our medical director. And many times we had to call the primary MD for the patient if the condition was related to the patient's medical history. We have a smart group here tonight. Yes, we do. <laughs> Next slide. So in conclusion, we should immediately screen all COVID-19 positive patients for possible MEBS infusion. The infusion is most beneficial early in the infection. Be familiar with the screening guidelines and educate your coworkers on the importance and the use of MEBS. Be an advocate for your patients and be persistent and assess for the possibility of home infusions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Yabra. This has been a great way to round out our discussion on neutralizing monoclonal antibody, uh, antibodies for the treatment of COVID-19. I want to thank my colleagues, Dr. Gottlieb, Dr. Bullock, Ms. Siabra, for helping us better understand the key role of physicians, PAs, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, and nurses in this challenging topic. It was great speaking with you today. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to a replay of a live broadcast about neutralizing MABs in the treatment of COVID-19. This activity was provided in collaboration by Forefront Collaborative and AKH Incorporated and supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.